Today's podcast is brought to you by Elenco Animal Health and Kelly's Finance. Hello, I'm Kerry Lunigan. Welcome to The Weekly Grill. And today, a very special guest. Special because he rarely, if ever, gives interviews. He controls a company comprising 40 cattle stations, three feedlots, making up around 5 million acres, carrying 300,000 head. And he has an abattoir as well. He employs 1,400 staff. His operation is the largest privately owned, vertically integrated paddock-to-plate beef operation in the world. Trevor Lee founder and owner of Australian Country Choice. You're on the grill with Beef Central. Welcome. Oh, thanks, Kerry. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, look, I have to ask you, this is a beef baron. I have to assume that you are in charge of the barbecue at home. Um, the term beef baron doesn't really grab me, Kerry, <laughs> but if you want to call me a cattle person, well, I'd, be cattle real, person. I'd be very happy about cattle, that. C- cattle baron? <laughs> no, a cattle person, but anyway, no, Kerry, uh, yes, I'd much prefer to cook the steak than anyone else. The only other person that cooks the steak in my life uh, normally would be David Foote. Oh, he's got. <laughs> he likes to take over the barbecue. Of course, he does. What a surprise! <laughs> now, back to when you uh, started. I have to mention that I had many enjoyable conversations with your late father, Norm. He struck me as a uh, typical bloke from that era, steady, conservative, and not one to take risks. Yet you, on the other hand, have always been expanding your business. You're hardly a chip off the old block, are you? Yes, you could probably say that, uh, Kerry. Dad was a very conservative man who. Uh, very much valued a dollar and was always looking at uh, uh, saving saving a dollar. He often, I suppose I could have said he, he was a handbrake at times, but uh, that would be very cruel because the truth was um, Dad always questioned what I was about to do or do and he was always a good sounding block for me. So... Um, uh, but he often said, "Don't you shouldn't do that, Trevor." <laughs> <laughs> and you didn't take much notice. Of well, not all the time. No, not all good. the time. Now, before we get into what you've been doing, we get back to your younger days and look at your extraordinary growth uh, path. Let's go back to your teen years, and it's been suggested you were more intent on surfing than going into the cattle business. Uh, that would probably be a fair comment. I wonder who told you that, Kerry. Well, that's, that's, a, that's, <laughs> that's a well-kept secret normally. <laughs> probably anyone of your age around the university <laughs> at that time might have said that. Oh, well, that's, that's probably true. But uh, no, no, I started surfing at about 13. I was very young at the time when I first started 30, uh, surfing and there wasn't uh, a lot of surfboards around in those days. You'd go to Noosa and... Uh, there might be, it was a dirt road into Noosa along the uh, the coast and uh, if you got there and there were two cars there, you thought it was a bad day. Wow, so, too busy. <laughs> <laughs> and I did a lot of surfing with uh, some of the, the better surfers in the uh, Australian surfing job Do, do you time. still get into the surf from time to time now on the, on the um, board? I do, uh, nowhere near as much as I'd like to. My knees uh, give me trouble now when I surf, so uh, uh, it's not something I'm doing all that often. Now, at school, you were pretty smart, but obviously a dud at arithmetic. I'm told that your maths master christened you Captain Zero. Hey. What did that mean? Kerry, <laughs> your, your, your information is amazingly good. What happened was that uh, the exam before uh, senior, uh, which was the final year at church or at school in those days, um, uh, I uh, failed 
uh, maths miserably. I actually got naught out of. Um, is that possible? Well, Did it was possible because it was ten questions worth ten points each. So if you got ten questions wrong, you got zero. <laughs> so that's how that worked. But no, uh, the uh, teacher said to me, uh, Trevor, uh, you know you've got uh, no questions right, and it's zero. Um, what am I going to say on your report card? And I said to him, well, I really don't know, sir. And he said, well, Trevor, uh, are you kind to your mother? And uh, I said, uh, yes. And when the report came out, it had maths zero, kind to his mother. <laughs> <laughs> Everything else I passed, but in saying that, Kerry, I did pass it. Oh, right. I okay. did a crash course at Hubbard's. Wonderful. Oh, well, good old yeah, Hubbard's in the old Hubbard's, yes. yeah. And... Um, I ended up with two Bs and three Cs. Wonderful, wonderful. Now, you left school, you um, went to university and studied or not studied for a couple of years, and you ended up being sent out west to Jackaroo, is that right? That's basically correct, yes. I, I, I spent, uh, I um, um, Tough progressed in my that. surfing career for right. about 12 months, Yeah, and um, my mum and dad just said at the time, uh, after uh, a miserable result at uh, university or virtually not attending at all, they um, uh, gave me the ultimatum. It's no more uh, looking after you, mate. You're on your own if you uh, don't get out and get a job. And I said, well, what am I going to do? And I don't know. And they said, well, they, or Dad said, I'll get you a job out at uh, uh, Roma with Ken Tompkins, which is what I did out to... Uh, Roma and uh, started jackarooing on Westgrove, one of uh, Ken Tompkins' properties. Nice bloke, Ken, a really nice bloke, and I would have thought you would have learnt a lot from him. Yes, I did. Um, he was a great guy, and uh, Westgrove was a, a big-scale property at the time, 300,000 acres. Wow. And uh, it was a, a genuine experience in saying that, you know, luck has its plays its path with all of us, but... I was fortunate the uh, the manager of uh, Westgrove had the nickname of Maxie the Taxi because uh, he particularly disliked uh, people like me who had no experience and really was only out there at the whim of uh, the owner. To toughen up. To toughen up and yeah. exactly that. So uh, uh, Max and I never got on all that well but the head stockman was a great man and he uh, took me under his wing and he uh, looked after me and... Uh, taught me a lot, so that's where I probably learned a lot about uh, cattle and horses. And, and about the same time, you were, after you'd been there a while, your dad bought a property, Brindley Park? That's correct, And yes. you went back and you weren't going to manage it at first, but that's where you eventually uh, sat, you, you went to, you, you were given the job of managing Brindley Park. Yeah, well I spent 12 months on uh, Westgrove and then I moved over to uh, Stewart's Creek um, under the the leadership of John Gorway at the time and uh, it was then that uh, Dad, it was that period that he bought Brindley Park. It was a 13,000 acre scrub block, but totally really unimproved and uh, I, the, ma the owner was to stay on for a few years and that didn't have eventuate so I ended up going in to fill in the, the role of, until uh, Dad found another manager but in the end that didn't happen and I took over the management. Now, you hadn't been there that long when you thought about the idea of a feedlot, which would have been embryonic in those days, very, very few feedlots, if any, in Australia. How did that get started? 
Well, you're quite right. I think my recollection of that time was that there was one feedlot had started in the Brisbane Valley early, uh, you know, the year before. I went over to America because I'd read about feedlotting and um, I went over, you know, I think it was in 66, uh, 7, just in the start of 67, I went over to America and had a look at the feedlotting industry and uh, came back because I could see there was a, a real path of, uh, being of consistency. So I went uh, uh, there, started the uh, feedlot and at the time there was uh, another two feedlots starting up at that stage. It was Don Brid- um, Dougal Cameron and Don Bridgeford. And you were actually feeding Brahmins in those days, were you? No, it wasn't so much feeding Brahmas, I was actually feeding Herefords in those days. Mm. We had a Hereford herd and uh, I was in love with British cattle. Uh, I suppose if, if one of your questions happened to be uh, what breed of animal did you like, well, I, I loved Herefords, but what eventuated, uh, I started a business with Coles and Coles, I quickly learnt that the customer was the person you had to focus on, not necessarily the cattle, and they wanted cheap meat in those days. And uh, the only way we could do that was by buying Brahmins and feeding them, and no one had ever fed Brahmins. So that's how that all started. Now, you said that magic word, Coles, which is seminal in the development of Australian country choice. You were just knocking around sale yards when you bumped into some Coles buys and there started the discussion. Yeah, well, I was doing a lot of... uh, cattle buying and trading of cattle and fattening of cattle on, on crops at that stage and in the feedlot. And we had started selling cattle to Gilbertsons in Brisbane and uh, the excess cattle that came out of our feedlots or the fat cattle were being sold in uh, Cannon Hill. And at that point, I did actually meet the Coles buyers and they um, asked me about the feedlot cattle and I uh, struck a deal with the Coles buyer that we could uh, supply a truckload of, uh, a week to them and that's how it basically started. Yeah. Wow, and it grew from there. What were you, At your peak then, what were you supplying Coles? Uh, at our peak, we were up to 6,500 cattle a week. Wow. So you inked that deal with them. What was the reaction of other people in the industry at the time? Because oh, it, it was a unique deal, wasn't it? Uh, yes, it was definitely a, um, uh, a different deal that had ever been probably done in the Australian meat industry, yes. Yeah, I understand that a lot of other people were a bit, uh, uh, could I say, shitty about it because it blocked their path to selling meat to one of the biggest uh, retailers in Australia and it assured your path that whatever you grow, if you grow it to the right specs, Coles are going to take it. Uh, it was. It's true to say I was mildly unpopular at the time. Uh, <laughs> I would accept that. Uh, in saying that, uh, people couldn't understand how it was working and why it was working, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the truth of the matter was that it lasted for 45 years Indeed. and went through three or four boards yeah. of coals. And if it hadn't it suited them for 45 years, it wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have lasted. So it was a business that suited myself and that suited allowed me to grow to uh, what ACC is today yeah. and um, certainly uh, suited Coles at the time. Now, as mentioned at the time what was going on, you were the envy of the industry, can I say, but I'm guessing you had to be on your game 100% of the time because those big super- supermarkets are hardly known there for their munificence, are they? 
No, that's correct. Uh, they're pretty tough customers, yeah. and but they have to be. They have small margins and uh, so forth in most goods, and meat was always a, a difficult uh, business for them. So being able to answer the questions on how they could get meat quality correct and get uh, uh, consistency in the product and consistency in price and exposure to what the true costs were were probably the secret of uh, how I got going with them and that combined with the vertical integration. Let's take a uh, short break now to hear a message from our podcast partner, Alenco Animal Health. This podcast is brought to you by CompuDose, a proven way to maximise growth rates in grass-fed cattle. CompuDose allows you to target and achieve specifications for most major markets, including MSA grading and feedlots. Contact Alanco and find out how CompuDose can grow your beef operation. Results may vary depending on nutrition. Always read and follow label directions. Welcome back. We're on the grill with Beef Central. Our guest today, the founder and owner of Australian Country Choice, Trevor Lee. Now, there was an eyebrow-raising moment in the ordeal with Coles when they asked you to supply hormone-free meat. I think the industry knows what it does to productivity, etc., etc. Was that a marketing ploy or was there some other basis to it? Well, it's interesting. Uh, my recollection's uh, quite clear on all of that. You know, it started with Woolworths. Woolworths were, were, were trying or wanting to go hormone-free at the time and couldn't do it. And um, Coles didn't originally have any intention of it and then... When they sold and the um, West Farmers took them over, the British um, management came in and that British management uh, wanted a more clean green type image of their meat and they saw that as a marketing tool and ACC it was big enough to be able to... The problem was you couldn't sell half the meat as hormone-free and the other half is not because people would obviously say, well, why, why is it so that hormones are right, right there but they're not here? And yeah. So what we did was uh, we said to them, well, if you want hormone meat-free, we could do 100% on the eastern seaboard if that's what you, you want. So we went out to our suppliers and uh, it took about two years to organise, but in the end we were able to supply everything. So it was based on the decision of the uh, the executives of Coles at the time, and they largely came from the England, and, and most, and, and of course they're part of the EU then, and that's, uh, that's their uh, hormones brand in the EU, aren't they? That's correct, yeah. and you know, I suppose one of the successes of uh, Australian Country Choice is at a very early age I realised that what was important wasn't necessarily what type of cattle I was doing, it was what the customer wanted. And that was probably one of the biggest differences between myself and our company and the other rural companies. So it was a a marketing ploy really, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. People have been trying for ages to prove there's something wrong with the natural hormones in cattle, but they haven't been able to do so, in fact... uh, I think the the figures around it are just astounding. But did you explain to Coles that the hormones would result in a ten to fifteen percent drop in productivity? And and the, did you ask who was going to pay for that? Yes, we certainly did. And uh, uh, to our surprise, they said they would. Okay. 
It was odd that the other major supermarkets didn't follow, though. I mean, Woolies didn't follow, but I'm guessing you're saying that they couldn't do it. They didn't have the ability or the supply chain to be able to implement such a scheme. That's my understanding, yes. yes. Uh, one last question on hormones. Of course, you're no longer... I'm going to ask you about coals in a moment, but uh, your cattle that you uh, process now, are they hormone-free still? Um, not unless the customer asks for it. Right, OK. So for all the reasons you just said, the... The production um, increase is, is 10 or 15 or percent higher or higher. Yeah. So obviously um, that's where you go and there is no health uh, negatives to it. So we do it. It's just if a customer doesn't want it, then we'll do whatever the customer wants. Now the coal steel, um, it appeared to be a wonderful, wonderful deal, which you've explained, but uh, you could when they put up the specs and you supplied. It was just a, a, a match made in heaven. But, of course, it eventually went sour. Now, who fell out of love, you or Colts? <laughs> well, it was a 45-year marriage, Kerry. I know, but it was, a multi, me, uh, you know. But it was a multi-billion dollar marriage. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, look, uh, there was a few, few factors involved. Uh, probably the first was that uh, the hormone thing actually took us to a percentage of uh, Coles' business that perhaps uh, was too high. We were at one point basically controlling 100% of the eastern seaboard and uh, once that, you know, it, it got to a point where Coles could only talk to one person if there was a problem in meat and price, so it ended up they were always um, talking to us about price and we started you know, arguments at times about that. But the bottom, the true story of the end of it was really that from an Australian country choice point of view, Succession planning was important. Uh, Kerry, my wife and myself decided that we really didn't want to pass the business on as a one-customer business. We were a lot happier probably passing it on to the uh, next generation as a uh, multi-customer business. So you've lost this big partnership. Where, where are your markets now? I understand you've, you're marketing your own beef on the domestic market. You've got exports lined up, of course, and you've got Woolies as a major customer now, of course. Look, our, our main business, yes, we do have Woolworths uh, as a customer and uh, we enjoy uh, doing business with them. Uh, we basically contract kill for other people is the, mo- the, the model that I've undertaken you know, with our whole vertical integrated model. Yes, you've got, so a, you've got a few big names here, Rangers Valley, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yes, we, we, we process for several of the large large brands, including Rangers Valley and Jack's Creek and Stockyard yeah. and a few of the others, yeah. I understand that you, prior to the pandemic and prior to our imbroglio with China, you were selling quite a considerable amount of beef to China? Yes, that's correct. Mm. And has that been lost temporarily, you hope, I guess? Uh, Anyone who says uh, it doesn't matter is probably wrong because China pays 10 or 15 cents more than anyone else. Uh, So you lose that advantage straight away, but... If you ask the new CEO of of Australian Country Choice, my son Anthony, yeah. he would say it was a blessing. A blessing. But basically, uh, dealing with China was getting too difficult, and uh, it was time that everyone looked for other customers and didn't put their uh, eggs in one basket with China. So we had already started that journey yeah. prior to uh, actually losing the license. And you wouldn't be the first to say that China is not easy, but that also made you, of course, look for other markets. Yeah, and uh, made our customers also. So that's a, it's a good thing to that degree. Yes. 
Time for a brief message from our sponsor, Kelly's Finance. Established since 1988, Kelly's Finance Group have the finance solutions when it comes to agribusiness lending, from property loans and livestock funding to machinery and vehicle finance. They are the experts in arranging finance on behalf of their clients that not only ensures market-leading interest rates, but more importantly, financing that is suited to your agricultural operations, not your lender's bottom line or their preferred security position. With access to an array of specialist and traditional finance providers, there's no job too big or too small for the Kelly's Finance Group team. Contact Kelly's Finance Group today for an independent and confidential discussion and how we can add value to your business moving forward. Welcome back. We're on the grill with Beef Central. Our guest today, the founder and owner of Australian Country Choice, Trevor Lee. Now, Wagyu, uh, you're now in the Wagyu game. Cheers. And it's becoming so popular, isn't it? Wagyu, Wagyu, Wagyu. That's all that's talked about. You're not worried that too many people are in, in the game at the moment? Uh, not really. Um, what, what, what would I say about the Wagyu business? I'd say that uh, there's a lot more money in it. Uh, it's a lot more difficult and that people uh, will go into it uh, and the end, end winner in that game is the one that can produce, produce the, back, the best Wagyu and the best Wagyu tend to be the ones that marble the highest, et cetera, et, yes. et cetera, and the meat quality and uh, we're, we're very confident that we can do that as well, if not better than most others. So, yes, it will become more popular but... Uh, those with the right genetics and those with the uh, ability and owning the full integrated process and the meatworks gives you a distinct advantage in that. So what, have you, you, what are you looking for now, pure bloods to start the, your seed stock? Yeah, the full bloods and pure red yeah. uh, is where we, uh, we want to go and uh, we're, we're looking very closely at all the uh, genetics and embryo transplants and we're, we're, we're kicking up the Wagyu business as uh, quickly as we can. Uh, I, I would like to remind you, of course, I, I find it astounding the, the interest in Wagyu right across the, the cattle, beef cattle industry, but um, America, the United States has just indicated they're getting into Wagyu. They've mm. got 100 million head over there. If they get 10%, that's 10 million Wagyu. Mm. South America's into Brazil, Argentina. South Africa, I'm told, is talking about getting into Wagyu. Same as Black Angus, isn't it? The uh, world was, yes. The world's <laughs> into Black Angus, and they still command. Well, look, the fact of the matter is that... Uh, the Black Angus do eat well consistently and the Wagyu eat well consistently and in the end, apart from price, eating quality is the thing that drives the meat business. So you're starting to breed your own Wagyu here? You, are, you, are you polling them at all? Yes, we're, we're breeding uh, and have been now for the last, I think it's about five years Yeah, and we're fast-tracking that. I think we've got seven or 8,000 Wagyu, uh, high-quality Wagyu on the books. Yeah. It's a, a bit of a worry at I think the chat is pretty low level at the moment about the genetic pool, whether it's too shallow. It's a bit I, of a I, I, I don't probably agree with that statement. Yeah. Yeah. I no. mean, it's, 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 there is a difference between the Japanese Wagyu and the Australian Wagyu yeah. and the American Wagyu. There is a difference. Yeah. And that is to do with the genetic pool, but the quality and the eating quality in the end and the performance, the... Um, they're not as difficult a breed, a breed to work with as, as people make out. Let's get back to processing. You were sailing along 
in the drought and making lots of money, but the last 18 months or two years, would I suggest that that quite a different deal for you, processing business these days? Yeah, selling meat is uh, in Australia is very, very difficult. You, you know, you've got a lot of things going wrong for you or, or not working for you. You've got the, uh, the cost of power, cost of electricity. The bottom line is we're um, 50% dearer than America, 70% dearer than South America to produce um, beef and uh, that, that's a challenge and consequently with the record cattle prices that are being paid today yes. uh, and the cost of processing, yeah. uh, the meat business is very, very tough. I suppose it must be some advantage to you that you're processing your own cattle? Um, yes, it is of, uh, an advantage but, but the truth of uh, that matter is that uh, with the number of cattle, that the, the, the price is the the thing that's driving yeah. the difficulties now. Now, the physical act of processing, you've just explained how much the costs are, imp- are implicated in the, in, the, in the business in Australia. How, how is the, um, the automatic side of the processing business going? How are the robots going for right, from one end of the chain to the other? Robotics is not going well within the beef industry and within itself in the meat side of it in Meatworks. It's improving and it's developing, and there are opportunities there. But I can't say, you know, we, we have just invested over the last three years in this plant $48 million in upgrading everything within this plant to handle heavier cattle, all types of cattle, plus putting in whatever is available to modernise the plant because mm-hmm. you have to keep yourself cost-effective if you don't. It's a slow death. Absolutely. But, uh, the, the, but the front end, that's the difficult one to uh, program with robots, isn't it? When you say the front end, you mean by the, um, the growing of the cattle? No, or no, coming out of, the, out of the kill box onto the floor and getting yeah. the, everything done that, there. You just need people on the ground. On yeah, the floor, all of you? that. It, it's labour intensive it and uh, it's very difficult with the different sizes like pig and sheep industry. Yes, you're dealing with an animal basically the same size every day. Yeah. Uh, when you're dealing with a 500 kilo wagyu or a uh, 120 kilo um, you know, trade animal, the difference is huge, and therefore the robotic side of it is very, very difficult. That's one of the. But in saying that, yeah. there are huge improvements with grading. Yep. And and processing. Don't get me wrong. There are great processes happening, and we have to remain within them. Hence, upgrading the, the plant. Trevor, when I talk to city folk about the possibility of a government imposing a tax on the burps of uh, livestock, they laugh because they don't think it could possibly be serious. But there is a serious tone to the government in Canberra about putting a, imp- imposing a tax on the methane emissions from bovine animals in particular. Have you got a view on that? Well, it's happened in New Zealand and uh, it's, it's being talked about and I'm sure in the end... There will be something like that happening. Um, my view is that we need to uh, look at how our emissions can be controlled as best we can. Yeah, carbon neutral beef is that on on the agenda for you? Uh, we're looking at it. Yeah, and you've got forty odd properties. There must be uh, uh, some that are perfectly suited for taking advantage of the carbon uh, market. Yeah, we 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 are. Engaged with it and have been engaged now for probably three years with looking at all of that. Uh, our most 
you know, it's easy to be within the, um, you know, growing trees or protecting koalas or something like that, but the real winner will be in the soil carbon and that's the one that's still difficult to, uh, to get uh, a handle on on any scale. Uh, but everyone, a lot of people are working on it. I'm sure it will come, and uh, when it does, it'll probably be a good thing for the industry. I'm just wondering whether beef advertised as carbon neutral is is uh, is a selling point for people or a buying point. Well, hopefully not in my time. Right. Okay. <laughs> now, now, just quickly, fake meat. Any opinions there? Well, um, there's a lot of people in the world, and there's a lot of people who want to eat different things. Uh, fake meat for me is not necessarily on my menu every night, um, but uh, we are involved in uh, fake meat. In uh, As long as it's not called red meat or beef, yeah. uh, if it's called what it is, uh, then I'm, uh, I'm, I'm okay with it. You're okay with it being uh, placed in the, in the meat aisle? At this no, it no. shouldn't be in the no. meat aisle. It should be what it is and called out for what it is. And uh, uh, if people wish to buy it, I think it's, uh, it's fine. If it, it reaches a price point that people can, uh, can afford, that's good. Now, Trevor, what you've done since you first had shit on your boots is really quite remarkable. What's your industry going to look like in 20 years from now? In 20 years from now, um, it'll be a very different industry, Kerry. I expect I won't be around to see that, but um, the bottom line of uh, the industry between what's happening with you know collars with cattle and the whole robotic things and what is happening within the, the industry from start to finish, uh, it'll be a very different industry. Trevor, it's been a great pleasure to talk with you and you're a busy man and thank you so much for your time on Beef Central's On The Grill. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Kerry, for uh, interviewing me. And thank you for joining me today. Until next time, I'm Kerry Lonigan, and this is The Weekly Grill, brought to you by Alenco Animal Health and the Kelly's Finance Group.